have any of you travelled overseas in the last couple of years? A much travelled group. I wonder if you can remember what you said when you got home. <laughs> Good to be home. You, you, you possibly said, why would anyone ever want to live anywhere but here? Best country in the world. Uh, we all tend to say that. It's easy to overlook the fact that that's exactly what Belgians say when they get home from international travel. It's what Nicaraguans say. It's what Canadians say. Even New Zealanders say that. Uh, Danes, Germans, uh, even Syrians. There are millions of Syrians dying to get back to Syria, even though we've seen the pictures of the rubble that they'll be confronted with when they try to go home in some of those cities and towns. Obviously, the pull of our birthplace, or if we've migrated, uh, our chosen uh, homeland is very powerful indeed. So wherever you are in the world, you're likely to say, why would anyone ever want to live anywhere else? Of course, the difference with Australia is that we can actually tell you why we're the best country in the world. <laughs> uh, and I have a little list of things we like to brag about. Uh, our robust parliamentary democracy. Yes, don't laugh. <laughs> Uh, we are, of course, replacing Prime Ministers at an unsustainable rate. No Prime Minister has held office for the full term of a government since 2007. And we have yet to see whether Mr Turnbull will survive this present term. Uh, I'm told that paramedics can no longer use the question, who is the Prime Minister, when they're trying to <laughs> test your cognitive capacity if you've been concussed. Uh, well, we like to say of ourselves, this is the land of the fair go. And perhaps most of you feel as though you've had a fair go, that this has been uh, a country that gave you a fair go. Uh, you wouldn't say that if you're an asylum seeker who'd arrived by boat. You wouldn't say it if you're an indigenous Australian. You wouldn't say it if you're a woman hoping for true equality in this culture and especially in your workplace. You wouldn't say it if you now find yourself on the wrong side of the growing income inequality gap. Well, what about our claim that we're one of the best educated populations in the world? Well, we are a well-educated population. We have more young adults now in university education than ever in our history, and some of those universities are world class. Uh, but when it comes to primary and secondary education, it's not as bragworthy as it used to be. UNICEF, uh, a couple of years, last year, UNICEF ranked uh, the 41 most affluent societies in terms of uh, the quality of their primary and secondary education systems, uh, in particular looking at the gap between uh, the, the best performers and the worst performers in the system. And out of those 41 countries, Australia ranked 39th. Uh, in fact, Ken Boston, uh, a name many of you will be familiar with, previous Director General of uh, Education in New South Wales, who was on both the first and second Gonski committees looking into school funding. Uh, Ken Boston is on record as saying the present quasi-market system of schooling 
has comprehensively failed. We are on a path to nowhere. And by the quasi-market system, of course, he meant the system which is not quite unique, but almost unique in the world, where uh, a, a large proportion of our education budget, uh, public money, goes to support non-public schools, creating that uh, sort of double uh, system supposed to be based on choice and competition, as a result of which the gap between our richest and best resource schools and our poorest, most disadvantaged schools has become a national scandal. $12 billion of public money goes into non-public schools every year. We used to think of our public education system as perhaps the proudest system, uh, pr proudest symbol of our, our egalitarian dream in the days when we thought we might become an egalitarian society. Well, what are we going to say about the present uh, education system uh, as a symbol of that. Uh, we're proud and by world standards perhaps justifiably proud of our relatively low level of unemployment, though of course the figures are seriously deficient. Uh, any of you who study this sort of stuff will know that in Australia, from the point of view of statistics on unemployment, you count as employed if you have at least one hour of paid work per fortnight. Uh, so what we really have to look at is the underemployed as well as the unemployed. If you put them together, currently in Australia we have two million uh, people who either have no work or much less work than they want. Uh, when I was preparing these notes uh, some weeks ago, uh, listing all the things we're proud of, one of the things I wrote was we have a, uh, we have a sound and stable financial system. Uh, well, it's not looking quite so sound or stable now as it, as it was even a few weeks ago. The Royal Commission, of course, is revealing appalling things about some of, uh, some of the activities, uh, deliberate conscious activities um, being undertaken by some of our major financial institutions. Uh, and, of course, we are struggling with record levels of government and household debt and a steadily falling rate of home ownership, which we used to think of when it was steadily rising, we used to think of as a symbol of our uh, economic strength. Well, surely we can brag about our natural resources and about our livable cities. Melbourne, in particular, seems to get close to the top of those international league tables of world's most livable cities. You wouldn't think so if you went there and got caught in the chaos and congestion of Melbourne and most of our major cities now. And even in terms of natural resources, if I say Great Barrier Reef or Murray-Darling Basin or the rate of, uh, at which we are stripping native forests in Queensland, we're stripping native forests at a faster rate than in the Amazon, um, or the rate of species extinction, there's plenty to be concerned about, even in relation to that. Now, I should pause there. This all sounds a bit negative. I pause just to say I am, as I'm sure most of you are, perhaps all of you are, a staunch patriot. I absolutely love Australia, and I have great faith in Australia's future. But it would be a very blind and feeble kind of patriotism that couldn't withstand 
an occasional confrontation with some rather challenging facts about us. And Carol, in her introduction, mentioned some of the facts which are rather challenging. She said, perhaps we're overweight. Well, we are about to become the world's most overweight country, uh, outstripping the country we all thought was famous for this, namely the US. Uh, we're about to uh, exceed them. 60% of us are overweight, 30% of us are obese. That's a symptom of something. Uh, many people will now say we're over-medicated. The, the, South, the uh, National Institute of Sleep Research says we're seriously sleep-deprived. Uh, this is having a big impact on our health, particularly our mental health. And of course, a major contributor to sleep deprivation is that we're now gazing at devices late into the night. I, I was in the Blue Mountains uh, late last year with a group of year 11 uh, students. We were talking about various things, including social media. Uh, one of the girls mentioned that she would, wouldn't dream of going to bed at night without having her smartphone under her pillow just in case it vibrates through the night. Um, and I said, who else goes to sleep with their smartphone under the pillow? Forest of hands, the entire class. Uh, that's their standard practice. Well, sleep deprivation is uh, one of the consequences of that. Uh, the CSIRO, just while we're on the subject of our general health, the CSIRO says our diet is seriously deficient in fruit and vegetables. And did you know that 16% of contemporary dependent children in Australia lack secure, reliable access to fresh and nutritious food, 16%. Uh, they are uh, among typically the 800,000 dependent children in Australia who are currently living in poverty. We have, uh, according to the only piece of research that's been done on this, and some people are not sure about the, the uh, authenticity of the statistics, but for what it's worth, uh, Australia has the highest rate of sexual assault in the world, and not just by a little margin, but by a mile. Our housing market uh, is very peculiar, very distorted by factors that encourage investment and make life more and more difficult for young families. Uh, to buy into the housing market. Meanwhile, we learned that on census night in 2016, one million Australian dwellings stood empty. So there's no shortage of housing in Australia. Meanwhile, of course, we have tonight uh, at least 100,000 Australians uh, with nowhere to call home. Um, you'll find it easy to believe, I'm sure, that we have the highest per capita rate of gambling losses in the world. In that respect, we're clearly the unlucky country. And we're also a society, but we don't have this on our own. Uh, this is rather typical of Western societies at the moment. We're a society suffering from a dramatic loss of faith in our institutions. And I think that's so significant. It's worth perhaps just pausing for a moment to think about the role of institutions in our society. Why do we have institutions? Obviously, we create institutions or we allow them to come into being to preserve our values, to express our values, to create a framework for our way of life, uh, to conduct activities collectively and cooperatively that we can't do on our own, such as run a financial system or an education system 
uh, or even manage a democracy. Um, so when any institution starts to look as if it's lost touch with the community that gave it permission to exist or the community that it's meant to serve, or when, a, when an institution seems to have become so powerful that like an individual, it's becoming corrupted by its own power, uh, which many people would say is an accurate diagnosis of the banks at the moment, uh, naturally we become uh, deeply disturbed and disappointed. Whether the institution is politics, huge disillusionment in Australia about federal politics, um, whether it's the banks, whether it's the churches, the mass media, the trade unions, professional sport, uh, wherever you look, the things that we have institutionalised are typically at the moment disturbing us and seeming to let us down. Well, of course, there's plenty of good news. Uh, there, there, there are some things we can brag about, aren't there? Perhaps the thing we can brag about most confidently is our brilliant, brilliant record in bringing a diverse community, a, a, a diverse collection uh, of people from about 180 different birthplaces around the world and creating a, a generally harmonious uh, society out of this. By world standards, uh, we are the champions at this. We're so good at it that if there are outbreaks of racial prejudice or ethnic tension, we hear about them. They, they make the media because that's news in a society that has done so well. Of course, we all grumble about the latest wave of new arrivals, whoever they may be, but we've, we've done uh, over the long haul an astonishing job. We have a long history of it, of course. Sixty nations were represented in the first fleet, and they arrived on a continent where there were 400 indigenous nations operating, so multicultural is something that's I guess in our DNA. There are other things we can brag about, of course. We're the inventors of zinc cream. Isn't that something to be pleased about? Uh, the rotary lawnmower, uh, but also grand things like the Snowy Mountains hydro scheme. Our world-class census. It, it wobbled a bit in 2016, but it's really the gold standard for censuses around the world. Uh, and the Australian Bureau of Statistics is indeed a national treasure. Uh, what about uh, our network of public libraries, of which uh, the Maitland Library is, of course, a beautiful uh, example? But what a fantastic resource we've created for Australia in those uh, public libraries, which, of course, are no longer places where you go and read books or borrow books. You do that, but all things like this. Um, uh, libraries increasingly are becoming community hubs, um, and the enlightened local government authorities are being very generous in the resourcing of these local libraries because of the impact they're having on social cohesion and community life in general. Well, there's our welfare system, better than, better than uh, most, but not as good as some. Uh, our support for marriage equality, and I think we can even brag about the Federation itself, can't we? Six sovereign states and two territories brought together to create this thing we call the Commonwealth of Australia. We occasionally hear murmurings in the West about secession, but it never leads anywhere. 
uh, we've made that work and we continue to make it work. Plus, of course, our many individual achievers on the world stage. We win our share of Nobel Prizes and Oscars and uh, Olympic medals and so on. But what I'd like to do uh, now is, is draw your attention to what, what is really the main theme of the new book that, um, that Carol mentioned, Australia Reimagined, uh, and that is what I regard as the two most significant facts about contemporary Australia. The first is that we are experiencing a mental health crisis. Uh, we don't, we hear a lot about it. We're not often really engaged with it as an idea, not really conscious of it because mental illness is invisible. It's silent. Uh, and there's still some kind of stigma attached for many people to talking about it in their own experience or discussing it uh, with, with people who are suffering. But Beyond Blue tells us that last year, two million Australians were suffering from an anxiety disorder and another two plus million were suffering from depression or some other form of mental illness. So between four and five million Australians last year, and that's just one year, that's a snapshot, um, Beyond Blue is saying probably one in three of us will experience uh, some episode of diagnosable mental illness in our lifetime, and the high probability is that that will be anxiety. The darkest shadow cast by this, of course, is suicide. Um, uh, in the last few years, each year, between 65 and 70,000 Australians have attempted suicide. Not all of those attempts, of course, have resulted in loss of life. But that's a very that's that's the population of a city like Albury uh, every year, deciding they've had enough and uh, attempting to take their own life. So that's fact number one. Fact number two: uh, we are a more socially fragmented society than we've ever been in our history. Uh, how has that come about? What, what has led to this social fragmentation? Well, we're all very familiar with the factors that have driven it because we ourselves have driven it. I mean, these are not things that have been done to us. These are things we've done to ourselves. Um, between 35 and 40 percent of contemporary marriages are ending in divorce, hugely disruptive and fragmenting, not just for the couples, and their extended families, but for their friendship circles, the communities uh, that they've been part of and so on. Um, where kids are involved, uh, that's more fragmentation. A million dependent kids are currently living with just one of their natural parents and half of them are migrating regularly between their two parents for access visits. That's half a million kids once a week or once a fortnight involved in a mass migration. Uh, our households are shrinking. They've been shrinking for a long time. In the last hundred years, our population has increased fivefold, but the number of dwellings has increased tenfold. In other words, we've been creating households at twice the rate we've been growing the population. Uh, the shrinkage is such that today, or at the, the, the 2016 census, uh, it turned out that one household in four contains just one person and the rate of shrinkage is accelerating. Within the next 15 years or so, it'll be one household in three 
that will contain just one person. Now that's, uh, many, many people in this room are living alone. Um, and, and some of you love it, some of you find it a challenge, but not everyone who lives alone experiences that negatively or feels lonely as a result of living alone. Um, many people love the fact that they can please themselves, uh, whistle out of tune, watch daytime television, eat baked beans out of a can. No one's there to criticise you for these things. Uh, and you can go and find company when you need it. But not everyone enjoys uh, the freedom and independence that others associated with solo, uh, with solo living. And certainly when we become a society in which every third household contains only one person, then clearly the risk of loneliness, the risk of social isolation and feelings of social exclusion is greatly heightened. And we keep hearing appalling stories about people who have been socially isolated, living alone, died, become ill, other things have happened and neighbours just haven't known uh, that it happened because they haven't been. Um, socially inclusive of those people. Uh, well, I won't go on with this list. We're, we're much more mobile than we used to be. We move house on average once every six years. We go everywhere by car. We're mobile in that sense, uh, in our, isolated in our little capsules. Uh, we're increasingly busy. Who isn't busy? Um, it, it's even changed the way we greet each other. Have you noticed that people now say, how are you going, busy? As though. <laughs> If you're not busy, you must be dead. Uh, if any of you are retired, you will know that it's absolutely de rigueur when you're retired to say, I'm so busy, I don't know how I ever had time to go to work. Uh, uh, so that means we are busy, and, and that means that there's less time and there's less energy available for nurturing, uh, engaging with local communities. And of course, another factor in all this is the IT revolution that great paradox of information technology, on the one hand promising to connect us more closely than ever before, and at the same time making it easier than ever before for us to stay apart. Um, and it's not surprising that there's now a, a weight of research building up, particularly among young, heavy users of social media, uh, spending a lot of screen time showing that the higher the rate uh, the higher the level of screen time, typically the higher uh, the level of anxiety and the greater sense, the sense of loneliness. Because of course, in spite of all its brilliance, all its cleverness and its convenience, it's a form of human communication that lacks human presence. And that's a qualitatively different experience from the sort of thing we're doing when we're looking at each other and talking to each other. Well, I'll stop that little analysis uh, and let's look at what it means. If you put all that stuff together, and that wasn't by any means a complete list, of course, but you put all that stuff together, the cumulative effect is very likely to be that the stability and the cohesiveness of local neighbourhoods and communities will be under pressure. Not necessarily more fragmented, but the tendency will be towards more fragmentation unless we address the problem and do something uh, to resist that pressure. Otherwise, we'll see the other consequence that flows from this, which is people start to feel less trustful in the places where they live. Edith Cowan University 
a few years ago published some research showing that only 35% of Australians say they trust their neighbours. One of the saddest bits of research I've ever seen. <coughs> the other thing that will happen as we become more socially fragmented, have more of a sense of ourselves as individuals rather than as members of neighbourhoods and communities, is that the me cult, <coughs> the me, excuse me, the me culture. <coughs> get <coughs> The me culture gets us in its grip and we start to feel as though it is all about me, it's all up to me and what I need to be focused on is my material comfort and well-being and my personal happiness and all that stuff. Well, I said I was going to present you with what I thought were the two most significant facts about contemporary Australia, but I'm sure you've worked out that I've only really described one fact. Uh, these are two sides of one coin, an anxiety epidemic and more social fragmentation. Have a more socially fragmented society and you will have an epidemic of anxiety. Uh, I fully accept that there are many contributing factors to individuals' experience of anxiety. It might be job insecurity or rent stress or relationship breakdown or loss of faith uh, or addiction to an IT device or whatever it might be. But when we're talking about, in any given year, two million sufferers from anxiety and other millions suffering from other forms of mental illness, um, particularly depression, we have to look beyond the triggers in individual cases and look at what kind of societal factors might be driving such a large-scale epidemic. And here's where I think social fragmentation is the culprit. Uh, why? Well, because of the nature of our species. Look at us. We're herd animals. We love congregating. We need each other. We belong uh, in groups and herds and tribes and, and communities, not only to nurture and sustain and protect us, but also to give us a sense of our own identity. There's a lot of rubbish talked about personal identity as though this is something you can discover by looking in the mirror or gazing at your navel or going on a weekend retreat to find yourself. Don't ever go on a weekend retreat to find yourself. Save your money. You can find yourself by looking into the faces of the people who love you, the people who uh, live with you or work with you or at least will put up with you, uh, the people who need you. That's who you are. It's our social context that defines our, our personal identity. And so all of that is put at risk when there's more social isolation uh, and these feelings of social exclusion. In fact, some prominent uh, mental health professionals, both here and now in the, in the US as well, are saying that social isolation is a greater threat to public health than obesity. So here, it seems to me, is the tragedy of contemporary Australian life. Not, I hope, the tragedy of Maitland life. I hope you're a glorious exception to everything I've been saying, but probably not to everything I've been saying. Um, but the tragedy is that we are not always living as if we understand that our own health, particularly our mental health, but our health in general, depends on the health of the neighbourhoods and communities that we belong to. 
And the other tragic aspect of our present situation is that when our anxiety levels do go up, we often look in the wrong place for a solution. We look uh, for a greater sense of control over our lives, even though lives are essentially uncontrollable. Uh, so we do symbolic things like getting obsessed with uh, renovating the house or getting a tattoo or a breast implant or the, the latest thing I think uh, seems to be getting an outdoor sink in the barbecue area. I don't know if you've managed to do that yet, but it's in your future. Uh, and this is, this is a way people feel they're somehow taking control of something, even though they can't control any of the big stuff that's going on. The quest for certainty, the, the flight to fundamentalism in religion and other aspects of life is an example of the same quest for a solution to our anxiety. Uh, even the obsession with security, uh, lock, locks on the door, bars on the window, and border force, uh, all saying to us we could get our anxiety level down if we could just uh, feel more secure. Well, these are all natural responses, and none of them go anywhere near the actual solution to this twin problem of social fragmentation leading to an epidemic of anxiety. It seems to me the, the solution can be captured in one word, and it's a very old-fashioned word. The word is compassion. Um, and, and I'm not talking about something that's the province of do-gooders and bleeding hearts. I'm talking about something that is, in fact, not an emotional thing at all. Uh, a perfectly rational response to our understanding of the nature of our species, our need of communities and the problem that we're now in. Uh, it's like a cool mental discipline that says the only way to live uh, for a species like ours is to treat each other kindly and with respect, especially if we disagree, especially if we don't actually like each other. Uh, it's not a matter of affection. It's a matter of saying what we need to commit ourselves to in order to keep the species healthy and thriving and, and our communities healthy and thriving, to commit ourselves to this goal of kindness and respect, even in the midst of our most robust arguments and disagreements. Now, compassion like that has a double effect, has a personal effect and a social effect. Personally, this kind of compassion is the great antidote to anxiety because, of course, it shifts the focus away from me onto other people who need me. And that's very therapeutic for me as well as helpful for them. Nothing steadies the emotions like the knowledge that someone else in the family, in the street, in the workplace, wherever it might be, uh, needs us. So that's a personal benefit uh, from compassion, but the social benefit, of course, is that compassion is like the high-octane fuel that, that drives the machinery of social capital. It's the, it's the crucial ingredient in the life of any successful, thriving community, especially a local neighbourhood. And throughout the book, I keep returning to the theme that's begun to obsess me, uh, which is that really the health of a society can best be assessed by studying the health of its local neighbourhoods. Now that's the sort of 
that's the sort of uh, discipline that can transform local neighbourhoods. Uh, in fact, there's an interesting study just completed, a three-year study. I wish it had been completed in time for me to include it in the book, but I'll mention it now. You can look it up on the net. Uh, it was studied. It was a study in the town of Froome, spelled F-R-O-M-E, in Somerset, in England. Uh, and it was, a, it was a study initiated by a GP who had come to realise that many of the health issues being faced by her patients were associated with their social isolation. And so she got together with local councillors, church leaders, other cultural uh, community leaders to launch what they called the Compassionate Froome Project. Now, it's just come to an end. It's being evaluated right now. And in the three years, here's, here's one indicator. In the three years of that Compassionate Froome project, admissions to emergency hospital admissions fell by 17%, while across Somerset, they rose by 28%. And a palliative care uh, physician in uh, Froome said, no other intervention on record has reduced emergency admissions across a population. And of course, that was just one indicator. Health indicators in general improved during those uh, three years of the, of the project. And of course, the project is ongoing, three years of the study. Now, what was this magical intervention that they did? What was the Compassionate Froome project? Well, they did create some local community groups to offer support and advice to people suffering, uh, managing medical or financial problems. But the main initiative was nothing to do with that. The main initiative was to say, look out for each other. Pay particular attention to people in danger of social exclusion, um, social isolation. Be attentive to people who are living alone. Uh, become more engaged. Join a local choir, get into a community garden or a U3A group or a book club or a men's shed or something. Get, get involved in the community in ways that will make you more alert to problems that exist around you. Always smile and say hello when you pass someone in the street, even if it's a stranger. Don't stand at a bus stop and ignore each other. Uh, past the time of day, this might be a person who at that moment needs to be taken seriously by being acknowledged or has something on their chest that they need to say. Well, it worked dramatically in Froome and of course it could work anywhere. Maitland, for example, if Maitland is in need of uh, an increase in our compassion. It's very easy to complain about the state of the nation, isn't it? We can easily wring our hands. I, I did a bit of it at the beginning of this presentation. We can easily wring our hands about the state of the nation. Uh, but it seems to me what's important is to understand that the state of the nation is not finally in the hands of our political leaders in the federal parliament. And in fact, when we're feeling a bit disenchanted with them, that may be a good thing because it may remind us that actually the state of the nation, the character and the values of our society start with us. The, the, state, the better world you dream of starts in your street and it starts by you taking the sort of initiatives that uh, they, they were taking in, in Froome and that you may, I hope, 
already be taking right here. If you think people aren't as friendly as they once were, be a bit more friendly. If you don't know your neighbours, I can't imagine anyone in a town like this doesn't know their neighbours, but if you don't know your neighbours, please make sure tomorrow that you knock on the door and say, G'day, I'm next door, I don't want to bother you, but I'm there if you need me. Uh, in, in our major metropolitan centres, we don't know our neighbours has become a kind of urban cliché. So what kind of Australia am I reimagining in this book? Well, uh, there are many chapters on subjects that I haven't touched on tonight about ways we might do politics differently, we might do education differently, we might do gender differently, we might do religion differently, we might do employment differently. But above all, the Australia that I dream of, and it seems to me far from being the impossible dream, is that we could be a place where compassion became our defining characteristic. A place where in all those departments of our lives, but especially in areas like politics and, uh, and gender relations uh, and, and differences in our religious positions, uh, we became people who automatically treated each other with kindness and respect, especially when we disagree. If enough, of, if enough of us individually in our apartment block or our street or our town uh, were to start living as if this was that kind of society, that's the kind of society it would become. Thank you.